you have your Bibles, turn to Acts chapter 25. Acts chapter 25. You ever had a customer service problem that you couldn't resolve? Maybe you bought a brand new item online and it was delivered to you broken. You had to call up the number, and unfortunately the person on the other line said, I'm sorry, there's really nothing we can do about that. You'll have to speak to somebody else. And then you finally bring it up to the person your mom always taught you to, someone higher up. You bring it up to the manager or their supervisor. And all of a sudden, the problem is solved. We'll send you a brand new one. Just wait a couple days. You see, many things like that in life happen where we try to accomplish things and we try to work with other people, but many times we need to appeal to a higher authority. And that's exactly what we're going to be looking at today. Today we're back in the book of Acts as the Apostle Paul has now become a problem of a new governor, Governor Festus, after Felix has been replaced. And we see the swift attempt to deal with the situation regarding Paul's inconclusive trial and Paul being left with no option here but to appeal to a higher authority. We're going to be looking at three things here in this text. Number one, avoiding the trap, verses 1 through 12. Number two, recapping the situation, verses 13 through 21. And number three, getting a second opinion, verses 22 through 27. Let's start with number one, avoiding a trap, verses 1 through 12. Now when Festus had come to the province, after three days he went up from Caesarea to Jerusalem. Then the high priest and the chief men of the Jews informed him against Paul, and they petitioned him, asking a favor against him, that he would summon him to Jerusalem, while they lay in ambush along the road to kill him. But Festus answered that Paul should be kept at Caesarea, and that he himself was going there shortly. Therefore, he said, let those who have authority among you go down with me and accuse this man to see if there is any fault in him. And when he had remained among them more than ten days, he went down to Caesarea. And the next day, sitting on the judgment seat, he commanded Paul to be brought. When he had come, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood about and laid many serious complaints against Paul, which they could not prove. While he answered for himself, neither against the law of the Jews, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar have I offended in anything at all. But Festus, wanting to do the Jews a favor, answered Paul and said, Are you willing to go up to Jerusalem and there be judged before me concerning these things? So Paul said, I stand at Caesar's judgment seat where I ought to be judged. To the Jews I have done no wrong, as you very well know. For if I am an offender or have committed anything deserving of death, I do not object to dying. But if there is nothing in these things of which these men accuse me, no one can deliver them to me, me to them. I appeal to Caesar." Then Festus, when he had confirmed with the council, answered, You have appealed to Caesar? To Caesar you shall go. 
You see, as we move into chapter 25, we've just seen the transition from Felix to Festus. And what's interesting is that Felix continually delayed the situation with Paul. Whereas when Festus takes over, he's the type of guy that wants to get right down to business. In fact, it seems to be that Festus makes it a priority to rule well with the Jewish population on behalf of Rome. Festus is just getting used to his new role and is faced right away with the problem of the Apostle Paul. And what's to be done with him? He's uh, the problem from the previous administration. I'm sure we've heard that before. Remember, Paul has been on hold under Felix for two years. But that hasn't stopped the Jewish people to still try to plot to kill him, to take him out. He still consumed their thoughts. And they were still very much urgent to take care of the situation regarding the Apostle Paul. They want him removed, executed. Now, as often happens when someone new is in charge, they are tested by those under their jurisdiction right away. When Festus comes by Jerusalem, he's asked by the Jewish religious leaders for a favor. Listen, can you bring Paul back to Jerusalem and let us deal with him? We know you're in charge, you're the new guy. Can you bring Paul back here so we can take care of this? Remember, two years have passed already. Their goal ultimately was still to plot and kill him on the way back. Some people don't give up, even if their intentions are evil. You would think that they would have given up after two years. Oh no, they're just as determined, maybe even more so. Before he even gets the chance to make it to the trial, they want to make sure he's killed. Festus maintains that Paul is under a higher authority in Caesarea. But if they'd like to bring their accusations to him, he's more than willing to hear them. They need to join him there when he's back. So sure enough, when Festus is back in Caesarea, he gets right to business and calls out Paul for an official trial. The religious leaders were ready to go. They had come back and were trying once again to go after Paul. They made the trip out to Caesarea. You have to understand, this trip is 60 miles away. They didn't have a Corolla to drive. Someone's urgent to take care of Paul. Although in their attempts to accuse Paul, they didn't really have anything to go off. They could not prove anything as they attempted to under Festus here. But what we find is a dilemma every leader has to face. What to do to keep the peace? I think every leader goes through this. Festus knew that there was nothing to the accusations against the Apostle Paul. But he also knew that it would hurt him very much politically if he just let Paul go. After all, he's the new guy right now. Now, as much as Festus is a go-getter, he also doesn't want to make the wrong move here and let Paul go free. So he actually offers to bring the trial to Jerusalem so he no longer has to be responsible. 
That's why he asks Paul what his take on that is. You see, this is a tension many a leader has felt, especially when it seems to be a lose-lose situation. No matter which way you decide, it's a lose-lose situation. In no-win situations, most leaders are faced with three options. Number one, moving ahead, just going for it, whatever the decision is that you want to make. Number two, waiting it out. Or number three, backing away. If you'd like to expand on more where that comes from, read things like Art of War. Moving ahead and declaring Paul innocent for Festus may have been political suicide. As he had just been appointed as the new governor in that region. And would have probably resulted in a blowout with the Jewish community. This would not have gone well for him. Now, Festus is more of a go-getter, so waiting it out is probably not the option he wants either. This would not have been his go-to move, as this would have been left unresolved and plagued his rule, as it did with Felix. So the best thing for Festus was to back away and be free of this decision, let them decide, and he no longer has to be held accountable just as Pilate did with Jesus. Now, very practical truths to learn about no-win situations, as we will all face them at times. When faced with a no-win situation, ask yourself these questions. See, Scripture's practical. It really is. What will I potentially gain or lose in going ahead with the decision I want to make? Ask yourself that question. What am I potentially going to gain or lose if I go ahead with the decision I want to make? Now, some things are worth sticking to your guns on. And though it may feel like a no-win situation, your integrity will still be intact. Here's another question to ask. Is there a more opportune time? We all know that sometimes timing is everything, right? Like, you don't have the serious conversation before the man is eaten at the house, right? It's probably not the best timing. At least with me, that's the case. You eat, feed me some food, let's have the serious conversation. Especially when it's a home-cooked meal. It's better than McDonald's or Taco Bell or that other junk. Sometimes, in no-win situations, the better the timing, the better the result. You bring it up now, you may get pushback, whereas with better timing, you may have your situa situation work out the way you would like, or at least the best scenario, even though it may seem like a lose-lose situation. Here's another question to ask. Is there someone better to give the situation to that will deal with it properly? Have you ever come across a no-win situation where you literally didn't know what to say because it almost felt like it was not your right to say it? I think they probably should talk to so-and-so because I really don't want to make that call right now. And then default in Grace Academy, Pastor Ron, what do you think we should do? 
There's always somebody else sometimes, right? Sometimes in no-one situations, you may not be able to respond properly. Now, the question is, is there somebody better to deal with the situation, or are you just abdicating responsibility? That's an important question to ask. Because sometimes people want to push it off to somebody else when they are supposed to deal with it. You, you see this in families all the time, right? Child's misbehaving, well, you deal with him. It's your turn. Uh, you're both responsible. That's that side nugget for parenting. Both parents are responsible in a home. For some things, it's best to back away and get another take or counsel. Look, if you're going to make a big decision where it seems like it's a lose-lose situation, no-win situation, it's best sometimes to step back and get counsel. Then plowing ahead and making it worse. Sometimes we try to find others to just confirm our foolish take as well. Don't do that. Sometimes we try to confirm that we got wise counsel and we find someone just like us that thinks just like us that we hope will give us exactly the answer we like anyways. Sometimes you do need to listen to critics and pay attention to what they criticize. I wouldn't dwell on it because critics will drown you at times. But there is some truth sometimes that needs to be analyzed. There's so much to be learned from Scripture, and even in this circumstance, we see the Apostle Paul's response. When he's asked by Festus if he's willing to go up to Jerusalem, to which Paul responds by really calling Festus out because he's abdicating his responsibility, and his attempt of passing the buck, Paul says, listen, I'm already under the Roman tribunal. Why would I need to go back to Jerusalem? I'm a Roman citizen. Paul restates his innocence and says if he's found guilty under Roman law, he's willing to face the consequences. Listen, if I'm found guilty, I'm deserving of death. I deserve it. So be it. But I've done nothing wrong here. Seeing that compromises are being made, Paul, as a Roman citizen, appeals to a higher authority. Caesar, leaving Festus no choice but to hand him off. This sets up Paul to be taken to Rome. But there are some details that need to be worked out. And in the process, there are some guests that come to visit. And they force Festus to recap the situation to them. Number two, recapping the situation, verses 13 through 21. And after some days, King Agrippa and Bernice came to Caesarea to greet Festus. When they had been there many days, Festus laid Paul's case before the king, saying, There is a certain man left a prisoner by Felix, about whom the chief priests and the elders of the Jews informed me when I was in Jerusalem asking for a judgment against him. To them I answered, it is not the custom of the Romans to deliver any man 
to destruction before the accused meets the accuser face to face and has opportunity to answer for himself concerning the charge against him. Therefore, when they had come together without any delay, the next day I sat on the judgment seat and commanded the man to be brought in. When the accusers stood up, they brought no accusation against him of such things, as I supposed, but had some questions against him about their own religion and about a certain Jesus who had died, whom Paul affirmed to be alive. And because I was uncertain of such questions, I asked whether he was willing to go to Jerusalem and there be judged concerning these matters. But when Paul appealed to be reserved for the decision of Augustus, I commanded him to be kept till I could send him to Caesar. What's interesting here is that Festus gets a visit from King Agrippa, who's Marcus Julius Agrippa II. He's the son of Herod Agrippa, mentioned in Acts chapter 12. Now, some background in the dynasty per constable. Herod the Great had tried to destroy the infant Jesus. One of his son, Antipas, Agrippa II's great uncle, beheaded John the Baptist and tried our Lord. Agrippa II's father, Agrippa I, executed James the son of Zebedee and the brother of John. He also imprisoned Peter and died in Caesarea. His son Agrippa II is the man Paul now faced. He had grown up in Rome and was a favorite of Emperor Claudius. He was the last in the Herodian dynasty and was the best of the Herods. You see, as we see, this dynasty was particularly against Christ from the beginning. And his followers, from the birth of Christ to the spread of the gospel after Christ's ascension. They were a family that were more puppets for Rome, but did care about their reputation very much. They wanted to be well known. King Agrippa comes by to probably congratulate or see how things were with this new governor. And this gives Festus an opportunity to recap the situation he was just dealing with. The problem for Festus, as we see spelled out in this text, is if he sends him off to Caesar, but he doesn't have a real reason for doing so, it's going to be absolutely rejected. And there may be more controversy from that. He needs a legitimate charge, of which Paul has none. He'd need to make some charges up at the very least to send Paul off. Now, we don't know if Festus knows the backdrop of the line of Agrippa, but he does narrow down the focus being on Jesus and the disagreement that Paul has with the Jewish leaders regarding the resurrection of Jesus Christ and his teachings contrary to the Jewish law and customs. Now, the problem for Festus is ultimately that now that Paul has appealed to Caesar, he is now responsible to make sure that that delivery occurs. And in doing so, he needs to have something to bring to Caesar, which puts him in a tough spot, because Paul is just simply exercising his rights as a Roman citizen. With all of this, Festus can't just send Paul off as it stands, which is why he looks for a second opinion. Number three, getting a second opinion, verses 22 through 27. 
Then Agrippa said to Festus, I also would like to hear the man myself. Tomorrow, he said, you shall hear him. So the next day, when Agrippa and Bernice had come with great pomp and had entered the auditorium with the commanders and the prominent men of the city, at Festus' command, Paul was brought in. And Festus said, King Agrippa and all the men who are here present with us, you see this man about whom the whole assembly of the Jews petitioned me, both at Jerusalem and here, crying out that he was not fit to live any longer. By one I found out that he had committed nothing deserving of death, and that he himself had appealed to Augustus, I decided to send him. I have nothing certain to write to my Lord concerning him. Therefore I have brought him out before you, and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that after the examination has taken place, I may have something to write. For it seems to be unreasonable to send a prisoner and not to specify the charges against him. One of the things that's very interesting to note here is that Festus is almost at a relief that King Agrippa comes by. There's a plan B. I could pass this on to him and he can help me out with this decision. He's going to get a second take and let someone else do the hard lifting for him. Try to figure out what it is that they could charge Paul for before they send him off to Caesar. What's interesting here is Agrippa tells him that he wants to hear from Paul himself. Look, look, I I get it. You've mentioned all these details, Festus. uh, I'd like to hear from the man myself. So there's obviously some buildup here because Agrippa's assuming to be of higher stature than Festus. Ultimately, what happens here is Festus builds Agrippa up, and Agrippa comes in with a lot of attention, almost like a rock star. He gets pomp. Everybody's thrilled. The important people are put on notice with him getting the majority of the credit. What's incredible is that Festus somehow knows that recognition matters to King Agrippa, as it did to his father back in Acts chapter 12. Although you'd think he'd probably prefer a different approach than what happened to his father. See, if you remember what happened in Acts chapter 12, well, let's read it, all right? Acts chapter 12, verses 21 through 23. So on a set day, Herod, which is King Herod Agrippa I, arrayed in royal apparel, sat on his throne and gave an oration to them. And the people kept shouting, the voice of a God and not of a man. Then immediately, an angel of the Lord struck him because he did not give glory to God. And he was eaten by worms and died. How would you like that for a family history? That's a lesson in and of itself. Might not want to walk in like that. Dad's situation didn't go so well. Festus presents the case before Agrippa and the rest of the crowd there. And he gives his take. But he ultimately leaves it to Agrippa to give him a second take on the situation. 
He argues that the Jews are demanding that he be put to death, but his, in his opinion, Paul had not done anything wrong. Nothing remotely close to being deserving of death. With Paul's appeal to Rome, which, by the way, is Paul exercising his rights to spare his life, perfectly fine to do so, Christian. If you have rights as an American citizen, you can exercise them. Paul did as a Roman citizen. Let me tell you, those practical truths are still in the Bible, as much as people may want to deny them today. With Paul's appeal to Rome, Festus doesn't know how to exactly send him off because he doesn't have any charges to bring against him. Caesar, we have a guilty man. What is he guilty of? We have no idea. I hope you figure it out. Festus is essentially saying, I'm bringing Paul before you all to get your take, but especially you, King Agrippa, so you can give me an indication of what I should send to Rome. Right now, my uh, letter to Rome is blank. I don't even know what to write down. Festus takes swift action as a new governor, but he still wants others to help him make the call, as we see here. You see, there are many decisions in life that we make where we might need a second take or a second opinion on it, especially those important matters in our lives. Unfortunately, sometimes we ask for a second take on things that don't matter, and on the bigger questions of life, we refuse to ask. We'll ask advice on what brand to buy for a car, computer, or a phone, but neglect to ask for advice on how to be a better parent, better spouse, better team player, better disciple of Jesus Christ. The things that truly matter more. You see, Scripture says a lot about this. And how important it is to ask for wise counsel. If you looked in the Old Testament, Proverbs 19.20 says this, Listen to counsel and receive instruction that you may be wise in your later days or latter days. You see, the wise tuck away counsel and instruction they receive in the past to help them live in the present and in the future. They don't just hear it and do nothing with it. They tuck it away for future use. That single person that learns from those that are married, when they're married, they've taken those instructions that they've learned as a single person and start applying them to their married relationship. This is why it's important to listen when you're younger. So you don't have to make the same mistakes as those that are older. How many of us as parents wish we had learned some things from someone else making the mistake than we did? Wish that we didn't have to learn the hard way, the school of hard knocks ourselves. Proverbs 12:15 says this: "The way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but he who heeds counsel is wise." There are lots of people that could care less about the advice others give them. 
They're self-made people. They have it all figured out. They fail over and over, but they're great because they did it their way. I'm an amazing failure. Let me be. Let me stew in my misery. Don't tell me what to do. They're ultimately living as fools. Now, both Christians and non-Christians can live as fools. There are many Christians that don't want to hear from other mature believers and what they should do and what they should repent of to the point of continually digging themselves into a deeper hole of sin and regret. We all think we know best, naturally. If you were to ask people if they have good discernment, they would say that they normally do. Everybody else is the foolish, stupid one. I'm wise. But how do we determine if a person's wise? Is there a biblical analysis for that? Well, there is. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. But fools despise wisdom and instruction. You see, it's amazing to many that others would even instruct him. And with the advice that we receive, many of us ignore it. You see, the ones that are mature and the ones that are wise are those that know how to apply God's principles found in his word. It could even be a person that is not a believer themselves. They know the principles of how money works according to the word of God. And they're applying certain areas of scripture properly. Because they're taking what God's truths are here. And the fact is, most people that really think those that haven't made financially are doing so because they cut corners don't realize that many times it catches up to those that do. If you want wise counsel on marriage, you probably don't want to ask a single person. They'll have a lot of advice that may not be well thought out because they've never encountered the situation you're in. Well, if I was married, I would do this. Well, you're not. I probably wouldn't want to talk to you about it because you're probably not going to give me the most solid advice. Now, if they're going to point to the scripture and tell me to read, you know, Ephesians chapter 5, okay, that's one thing. But if they're going to offer me practical advice, I probably would rather go with a married couple that's been married for years, that's been walking faithfully with God and raising their children. Find a godly couple who exemplifies what you would like to learn. If you want wise counsel on money, you probably don't want to ask your poor, broke, still gambling uncle, Don. Probably not going to offer you the best advice. And I'll just roll that dice. I'm down 30 grand, but next time I'll be a winner. Find someone that's made wise choices with their money and knows how to manage it well. Now, by the way, it doesn't have to be a rich person, but someone that's a good steward and not making poor choices. If you want great advice on finding what God wants you to do in any particular situation, 
you probably don't want to ask your friend who hasn't been faithfully in the word themselves and away from the fellowship of the people of God. What is amazing to me is the people I see online, particularly Facebook, it reveals a lot more than people realize. The garbage that people that don't walk faithfully in the church share on Facebook is absolutely shocking. They find other people that are in the same situations they're in, and they ask for their opinion and advice on how to live the Christian life when that person's not living faithfully either. What's amazing is how easily fooled so many Christians are to find support from someone that is just as much of a failure in those areas in the Christian life as they are. Hoping they can somehow help each other instead of both drowning. Look, if you have a certain addiction, the best person to help you break that addiction is probably not a current addict. Yeah, we'll hold, we'll hold each other accountable. You're struggling the same thing. We've got a problem with alcohol. We're both drinking together. We'll stop together. Probably not going to work out. Scripture is filled with wisdom and encourages wise counsel. Unfortunately, so many of us do it our way, or we want to pass the blame to others for the situations that we're currently facing. I mean, goodness, America is all about, it's the president's fault that my life is horrible. It's mommy's fault, it's daddy's fault, it's everyone else's fault but my own. It's my spouse's fault that I'm not happy. It's my children's fault that I'm this way. I've had it with them. How about you hold responsibility for you? And I hold responsibility for me. Unfortunately, we give people more control in our lives than they should have. We let very little of this control what we do. Anytime we're faced with difficult situations and decisions, make it helpful to us to appeal to a higher authority for help. So in conclusion, my question to all of us, do you appeal to a higher authority? Do you find it easier to get advice from your peers or those that may have more wisdom than you? Now, age isn't necessarily the determining factor. You may be younger and have some things down that older folks don't have down. I know plenty of older adults that may ask younger adults for advice in areas that their children may be doing better in than they are as parents, particularly if they're older in their years. The reason so many of us don't grow in certain areas of our walk with God is because we're simply going to the wrong people for advice. Or we're flat out ignoring the wise counsel provided to us. Thomas Watson once said, associate with sanctified persons. They may by their counsel, prayers, and holy example be a means to make you holy. Disciple of Jesus, it's important who you hang out with. And some of the people that are, a lot, that are outside the fellowship of the church or hanging out with are continually bringing them further and further into disaster. It is with wise counsel that you will develop a hunger for the word of God and the people of God. 
A faithful disciple of Christ is not going to dissuade you from going to church. They're going to encourage you to do so. A faithful disciple of Christ is going to encourage you to be in the Word of God, not give you excuses for why you're not in it. A faithful disciple of Christ is going to encourage you to raise your children by what Scripture says, rather than the current psychology traits that are presented. The wisdom of a godly saint comes from the Word. It doesn't come from mere emotional experiences, but by the living, active Word of God. The highest authority we are to appeal to, church, is the Word of God. And if we ignore it, or outright reject its place in our lives, we do so at our own peril. I will say what I've always said the last couple years as a pastor. If this word is not in you, you will not live the Christian life well. It's impossible. And just getting that little post on Facebook to your encouragement for the week, your verse of the day, is not enough. You need to study the Word of God. You need to be in the Word of God. You need to meditate on the Word of God. This has to be so much a part of your life that people know that you live and breathe this. We're not just to know what the Word of God says. We are to have it stir our hearts to action. Look, if I know what the Word of God calls me out as a father for, It should stir me to be the father that I ought to be before God. If I know what Scripture says about how elders should rule in the church, that should stir me to rule that way in this church. And these areas that Scripture calls you and I out on, we are to own for ourselves. Unfortunately, so many of us like to look at everyone else and pay attention to what they're flawed in. It's time to take the word and look in the mirror for ourselves. Unfortunately, so many people do this with the Bible. Here's the Bible. This is you. Richard Sibbs says, When the Word dwells as a familiar friend in the heart to direct, counsel, and comfort us, then it is a sign it abides there. The devil knows good and hates it. Therefore, knowledge alone is nothing. But when the promise alters the temper of the heart itself, then it is engrafted there. If you've been ignoring this point of authority in your life, it's time to pick it back up. It's time to pledge allegiance to Christ and to the words that are revealed in his word. Read it, dwell on it, and apply it.